if life had gone according to plan, I would have began today on top of the Mount of Olives with a panoramic view of the old city, the city of Jerusalem. By now, I would have walked the Palm Sunday Road, and I would have spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, I figured it out. At this moment, I would be splashing in Hezekiah's tunnel, in the water, the stream that flows through that tunnel. I would be leading my 11th tour of Israel. But as we all know, life doesn't always go according to our plans. On October the 7th, Hamas terrorists invaded Israeli neighborhoods around the Gaza Strip and killed 1,400 Jews. They committed heinous and unspeakable crimes. Israel has since invaded Gaza to retrieve the 237 hostages still held by Hamas, to root out the terrorists who have orchestrated the attack, and to demilitarize the Gaza Strip. Sadly, as in all wars, the fighting threatens and endangers innocent civilians. In response to this war, protests around the world have erupted. Some support Israel, but many are in opposition. The pro-Palestinian slogans you hear say it all, glory to our martyrs. This exalts the butchering of Jews that occurred on October 7th. In the occupation implies that the Jews have no indigenous claim to the land and are modern-day colonizers. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, designates the boundaries of a desired Palestinian state. But from the borders of the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea presupposes the elimination of modern Israel. The implied idea is that a national home for Jews in their ancestral lands has no legitimacy. They have no right to exist. And yet the Bible declares that they do. The Bible is clear. God chose to bless the world through the Jewish people. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Hebrew family, among which is a parcel of land that includes the current borders of the state of Israel. I believe the Zionist migration of the Jews back to their God-given land is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. I'm not saying the Palestinian Arabs shouldn't have their own country. Israel has made proposals in the past. Their chief request in return has been just the acknowledgement of Israel's right to exist. Sadly, that seems difficult for Palestinian leaders to concede. Who knows the future compromises that Israel may accept under the right conditions to a political path toward peace. But biblically, the Jews have every right to the land that they currently occupy. In fact, their land grant involves us. It's tied to every Christian's salvation, as we'll see this morning. If you love the Bible, if you're a Bible person, you need to realize that God's Word teaches the Jewish nation has a special role in God's redemptive plan, and with that role comes a homeland. It's Israel's divine right to live in their God-given land. This morning, I'd like to discuss the foundation of God's promises to the nation of Israel, God's covenant with Abraham. 
Now, if asked to divide the Bible in half, most people would do so between Malachi and Matthew, between Old and New Testaments. But an equally valid dividing point would be between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. For in Genesis 1 through 11, God works to redeem mankind as a whole, but with very little success. Chapter 11, of all chapters, chapter 11 (laughs) shows just how morally and spiritually bankrupt mankind became. After the global flood of Noah's day, God hoped to start over with the flood survivors. They were to scatter and multiply. Instead, they huddled up. The flood changed life on planet Earth. Harsh climates, rugged topography, predatory animals made life for its inhabitants more difficult. The world was now a frightful place. And the question became, will we trust God or will we fend for ourselves in this scary new world? A man named Nimrod played on people's newfound fears. He denied God's rainbow sign, and he questioned his promise to never flood the earth again. Nimrod told the survivors that God was the bad guy. He was their savior. That's why he built a tower, and he coated it with pitch. Why else would you build a waterproof tower in the desert unless you were expecting another flood? Nimrod waged war against God. His waterproof tower doubled as an observatory. He consulted the stars. He was the world's first astrologer. He coaxed human beings into bowing down to creation instead of to the creator. Satan chose a man named Nimrod, a place called Babel, and a means, namely fear. And God had to bust up this mutiny. He crashes Nimrod's party. He alters the monotongue of mankind. And he confuses the languages. You know the story. The Almighty forces the human family to finally separate and to scatter. But in light of the rebellion, God doesn't just wash his hands with humanity. Never. God loves us. And he constantly is pursuing a relationship with us. He just employs new tactics, a new strategy now. For beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, God no longer works with humanity in mass. Instead, he picks one family. For in Genesis 12, God chooses a man named Abram, a place called Canaan and a means, chiefly faith. And the rest of the Bible is the story of the salvation that God works through the Jewish people, a.k.a. the family of Abraham. Well, Genesis 12, verse 1 begins. Now the Lord had said to Abram. Now realize, this man, Abram, began an idol worshiper. In chapter 11, verse 28, we're told that he was from Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a Babylonian city known for its luxury and its sophistication. In fact, bathtubs were first used in Ur. It was the hot tub hotbed of the Fertile Crescent. Yet the day came when the one true God spoke to Abram. And unlike his peers, he trusted in what he heard. From then on, Abram believed in Yahweh. Not always perfectly, 
But time after time, he went against the grain of his skeptical culture, and he believed in God's promise. While living in Ur, Abram married a Hur, a gal named Sarai. And the name means contention, contentious, which proves marriages in those days had to be arranged. What man in his right mind willingly weds Miss Contentious? And yet the Lord spoke to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. One day, Abram comes home from work, and he says to poor Sarah, baby, pack up, we're moving. She's so excited. You got a raise. Uptown Ur, here we come. We'll be living in a swimming tennis. Sarah's already thinking about new furniture, trust me. But then she asks him, honey, where are we moving? Oh, boy. And she wasn't ready for Abram's answer. He tells her, Sarah, God told us to move. He just didn't tell me where. Recall the meaning of her name, contentious. Trust me, a heated discussion must have followed. Abram's initial foray in faith was more like a stumble rather than a step. God said, get out of your father's house. Instead, he let his father and his nephew Lot tag along. Abram was also told to go to a land God would show him. On his first attempt, he didn't make it that far. Abram moved 600 miles west of Ur, but he stopped 400 miles short of Canaan. In other words, he followed God halfway. And you know, this can happen to us. We can make a move toward God, yet pull up short of all he's asking. We hold on to elements of our old life rather than shake free. We have one foot with the Lord and one foot in the world. See, some people have too much of the world to enjoy God and too much of God to enjoy the world. It was Donald Barnhouse who used to put it. They have enough Christianity to be miserable in a nightclub, but not enough to be happy in a prayer meeting. Rather than relocate to a new land, sometimes we only move upstream. And a partial follower of Jesus is a miserable person. Abram's compromise landed him in Haran. The name means parched. And when we make concessions, when we dilute our commitment to Jesus, we become spiritually parched. We become dry and thirsty. If you're spiritually dehydrated this morning, if you're thirsty for living water, perhaps the problem is you've been following God halfway. Abram didn't fully follow the Lord until his father died. Terah had held him back. So what's the Terah in your life? What needs to die for you to be fully devoted to Jesus? Often faith begins with a funeral. But God also made another promise in his covenant to Abram, verse 2. He says, I will make you a great nation. Now the name Abram means father. But this was an embarrassment to Abram for a long time. He was 75 years old and he was childless. And every time Abram met someone new, he was asked about his kids. I mean, his name invited the question. An old father had to say that he didn't have any kids. Yet here God promises Abram descendants, offspring. 
You can't sire a great nation without a child. Later in chapter 13, verse 16, God tells Abram, I will make your descendants as the dust of the sea, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. In Genesis 15, God takes Abram out under a starry sky, a night sky. They gaze up at the stars, and he promises that his descendants will be as the stars in the heavens. Imagine a 75-year-old geezer. He's going to have a family as innumerable as the dust particles on earth and as the stars in the heavens. And then God makes Abram a third promise, verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And ultimately, this blessing becomes our salvation. The Gospels emphasize that Jesus was born of Abraham's lineage. All of the blessings that are in Christ come through God's promised blessing to Abraham. You know, it's interesting. Nimrod had said, let us make a name for ourselves. But he sought greatness apart from God in rebellion to God. Yet Abram chose to live by faith and follow God even into the unknown. And as a consequence, God promised to make his name great. At first glance, you might miss the importance of God's covenant with Abram. It is disarmingly simple. And yet Genesis chapters 12 verses 1 through 2 is one of the most strategic passages in all of the Bible. From time to eternity, history turns on the deal that God struck here with Abram. The Abrahamic covenant. Notice again the threefold promise that God makes here to Abram. A chunk of land a great nation, and an ultimate blessing. Here's the convinced version. Three simple words, land, nation, blessing. Or an even easier way to remember it, sod, seed, salvation. That's what he promised him. And I hate to belabor the point, but please understand the significance of this agreement. It can't be overstated. The Abrahamic covenant becomes the bedrock of the Bible. The rest of the book, Genesis 12 through Revelation 22, fills in the details of this threefold promise. The Bible is all about the land God gives to Abram, the nation that he births or the people that he births, and the blessing that comes through his lineage. You grasp those three promises and you'll understand the Bible. And notice what else God promises Abram and his offspring in verse 3. God takes an oath. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not only does scripture bear this out, but so does secular history. Nations have prospered and crumbled based on how they treated Abram's family. Egypt declined in power after they enslaved the Hebrews. After Babylon sacked Jerusalem, they were conquered by Persia shortly thereafter. Greece declined after Antiochus desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. Rome persecuted the church and were overrun by barbarians. The Byzantines sunk into the Dark Ages when they started punishing the Jews. Jewish inquisitions is what ended Spain's greatness. 
Hitler's attempt to exterminate the Jews sealed Germany's defeat. And one of the reasons for the sudden fall of the Soviet Union in my day was its cruel treatment of Jews and its opposition to the state of Israel. And God continues to shed his grace on America because we remain staunch allies of Israel. And if we ever pull that support, mark it down, judgment will follow. In Genesis 13, verse 14, God wants to give Abram a deeper appreciation of his promise. God wants to make it real and tangible to him. And so he says, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Genesis 13, verse 14. Northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Farther than the eye can see. That was the land that God promised Abram. And notice the duration of the promise. All the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Forever is a long land lease. Thus today and in the future, it doesn't matter what the U.S. or the E.U. or the U.N. or the G8 or the OPEC says about Israel's borders. The land God gave Abram belongs to the Jews, for God said so. It is their divine right. At times, Israel may trade land for peace and strike deals with Arabs to share land, but biblically, it belongs to Israel to share. And look at what God tells Abram in chapter 13, verse 17. He says, Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Abram's feet need to pound the ground. God wants him to experience firsthand his blessing. And this verse is so important, especially for Christians who today try to spiritualize these promises and say that God's promise of the land was just metaphorical. Oh, Abram's exploits are figurative of our spiritual journey. Just walking through the land is analogous to growing spiritually. I'm sure there are some spiritual parallels between Abram's journey and the Christian life. But don't you dare try to spiritualize away God's promises. God told Abram to put feet to dirt, to walk the literal land that God had promised him. The point is, God's land grant to Abram was a literal parcel, a specific chunk of dirt, a clod of sod, some sod from God. The Abrahamic covenant involves real land to real people. Its heirs are not just spiritual children of Abram. They're the DNA-marked bloodline descendants of Abram. God has literal promises on the books that deal with literal land and historical people. In fact, God even promises Abram literal borders. In Genesis 15, verse 18... God tells Abram, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, that is the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates. And in light of today's conflict in Gaza, this is shocking to us. The Palestinian slogan, 
the river to the sea, means the west bank of the Jordan River. But God's land gift to Abram was from the west bank of the Euphrates River all the way to Egypt's Nile River. That not only includes the disputed territories, the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan, but a lion's share of what is today Egypt, the Sinai, Lebanon, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Iraq, Kuwait. I'm sure Arabs in Egypt are in denial of this. But the land God promised Abram includes denial. Today's Israel consists of 8,000 square miles of real estate, just a slither the size of New Jersey. But one day, and it may not be until Jesus returns, but one day Israel will possess all 300,000 square miles that God has promised them. And according to Genesis 13 verse 15, this is the land that has been given to the heirs of Abram forever. But who was Abram's heir? This is the big question today. In two episodes from his life, clear it up. Clear up any confusion. In Genesis 15, it had been a decade since God first promised Abraham descendants. He's 85 years old now and he started to worry. He knows that there's an expiration date on childbearing. That fertility is not forever. Abram suggests that God make his servant Eleazar his heir apparent. But that's not God's plan. In Genesis 15 verse 4 we're told, The word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Abram has been on social security now for 20 years. He's no spring chicken. And yet God is going to solve his problem of an heir, not by adoption, nor by in vitro, nor by surrogates. Even before the days of Viagra and Cialis, the old boy is going to sire a son from his own body. And notice Genesis 15 verse 6. Here's a key verse in your Bible. It says of Abram, and he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. This is an off-quoted verse. It appears four times in the New Testament, in Romans 4, verse 3, in Romans 4, verse 22, in Galatians 3, verse 6, and in James 2, verse 23. This is the verse that the Apostle Paul uses to prove that we obtain and we maintain a right standing with God, not because of what we do or don't do, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. All God's blessings are received by faith in faith alone. As Mark Twain once said, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. This is why God bestows his blessing on both the Jew and on you, Not because either has earned or deserved it, but because of his amazing grace. And what happens next is one of the most fascinating and monumental events in all of the scripture. Abram believes God's promise. But again, his faith isn't perfect. So Abram asks for some corroboration. 
He wants God's signature on the covenant. And God signs all his covenants with blood. So God responds to him in chapter 15, verse 9. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. What in the world is going on? God's starting a petting zoo? Verse 10 says, Then Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now this was how people of antiquity signed their contracts. You and I have heard the expression, cut a deal. Well, in those days, they literally cut a deal. They would slaughter a series of animals. Abraham cut, Abram would cut a section, a cross section of animals from the head to the toe. And then he arranged the animals in the animal halves in a corridor. The more important the covenant, the more animals were required. That's why so many are mentioned here. You think a house closing is a hassle. Just imagining entering into this type of an agreement. Well, after the animals were sacrificed, the two parties of the covenant would meet in the middle, between the animal halves, in the corridor, between the animal halves, and they would walk arm in arm between the animals as a commitment to their part in the transaction. Note the imagery. They would walk between the same animal, thus becoming one. Well, Abraham, he got his knife out and he went to work doing what God told him to do. He went slicing the sacrifices and then he sat down to wait on God. Understand, Abraham literally expected God to come, appear to him, and walk with him through the animal halves and sign this agreement. He waited all day, deep into the evening. Abram exhausted himself, shooing away the hungry vultures, waiting on God to appear. That night he fell asleep. And he had a nightmare of sorts. God revealed to him the future of his offspring. Their 400 years in bondage. Their exodus from Egypt. Then how God would use them to judge the evil Amorites when they returned to the land. And then what happened next fascinates me. It astonishes me. Every time I read it, chapter 15 verse 17 says, And it came to pass... When the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Again, ancient covenants were signed when both partners joined arms and walked through the animal carcasses together. In essence, they would be saying, if I don't fulfill my end of the deal, then I'll be dead meat. Abram was expecting God to appear to join arms with him, and the two of them to walk through the corridor of blood together. But that's not what happened. God appeared while Abram slept. He came in the form of a burning torch in a smoking censer, as smoke and fire. Later, God will guide Israel through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a fire by night, by smoke and fire. See, here's what happened. God walked through the animal parts without Abram. God did the work all by himself. God made this covenant unilaterally. 
Perhaps Abram woke up just in time to see God walking through the carcasses. He woke up, he looked on, and he believed. That was his job. And in doing it this way, God established a unilateral covenant. It was a totally one-sided covenant. This was not man's part and God's part. It was all God. God took sole responsibility to complete his promises to Abram. All God expected from Abram was to rest and to look on in faith. And here is the lesson for you and I. Salvation is not a tag team effort. It never has been. It's not up to us to meet God halfway. The blessing of God is not received by Jesus doing half the work and then you, the recipient, doing the other half of the work. No, our covenant of salvation, God does all the work. He takes sole responsibility for earning the blessing. And all we're required to do is to wake up and to look on and to believe. And you would have hoped the signing of this covenant would have steadied Abram's wobbly faith. Sadly, not so. God uses Abram as an example of faith, but his faith isn't a perfect faith. There is no such thing. And in chapter 16, Abram and Sarah wobble together. Sarah now is at least 75 years old, and for years now she's been taking mega doses of fertility medications, but it just ain't happening for her. And so she concocts a plan. Sarah has a maid named Hagar. Maybe Hagar will bear a child in Sarah's place. An attempt at surrogate motherhood. Abram goes along with Sarah's scheme. Hagar enters Abram's tent, a maid, and she comes out a mom. She has a boy. Finally, Abram has new baby photos for his iPhone. His son is named Ishmael. And yet the birth of Ishmael teaches Abram a painful lesson. For almost immediately, Sarah's plan backfires. Abram learns firsthand the agonizing truth that a sinful plan never produces godly results. We're told in Genesis 16 verses 4 and 5, when Sarah saw that Hagar had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. Old contentious is now acting the part again. She blames Abram for her idea. The baby isn't even born yet, and a war erupts. Hagar is haughty. Sarai is jealous. Poor Abram gets caught between two feuding females. And this ancient sibling rivalry is still what victimizes the Middle East to this very day. Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. Isaac is the father of the Jews. And both their progenies are still at each other's throats. The current hostilities between Jews and Arabs are the result of Abram's lack of faith. Remember, try to do God's will your way, and you'll make a mess every time. Yet on the heels of Abram's failure, God prepares him for the miracle birth. The Abrahamic covenant is so significant. God attaches to it a symbol. 
In Genesis 17, God instructs Abram and his heirs to be circumcised. And to me, this is one of the biggest steps of faith I could imagine. A man 90 years old having a surgical procedure on his privy member? That's some rough stuff, bud. But what this symbol stresses is that the Abrahamic covenant was passed reproductively. The land, nation, blessing was intended for the heirs that came from Abram and Sarai's own body. It's poetic justice that God places the covenant symbol on the fountain of reproduction. In Genesis 17, the two waiting parents receive new names. Abram is 99 years old and freshly circumcised, I might add. To me, that makes him a man of faith. That qualifies him, no doubt. And because of his faith, God gives him a new name, Abraham, or the father of many nations. The name anticipates his son. He goes from father to big daddy, Abraham. And God also gives Sarah a new name. She goes from Sarah or contentious to Sarah or princess. When God reaffirms his promise to give a 90-year-old Sarah a son from her own body, Abraham shows his great faith. The Bible says he fell on his face and laughed. I imagine all he could think about was, I've been on Medicare for 45 years. You've got to be kidding. Actually, when God mentions that the time has come for Sarah to have her son, in chapter 17, verse 18, Abraham shouts, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He considers Hagar's boy to be the son, the promised son. But God's reply has profound theological and political ramifications to this very day. For in verse 19 of Genesis 17, God corrects Abraham. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And here is the underlying issue in today's Jew and Arab squabble. The heir to the Abrahamic covenant is Isaac, not Ishmael. It's the Jews, not the Arabs. Muhammad was a shepherd merchant who became disillusioned with life in the Arabian city of Mecca. One day he wandered into a cave in the mountains outside the city. And there he had a series of heretical visions that denied the Christian God and his triune nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Muhammad claimed the only way to please Allah was to surrender to him personally. Muhammad was an upstart prophet who needed religious corroboration for his visions. And so he claimed a connection to Abraham through his son Ishmael. In fact, in the Quran, Muhammad does a rewrite. In at least 16 passages in your Bible, the Bible refers to the God of the land and the covenant as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Quran, written 2,000 years later, refers to Allah 
as the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac. Muhammad exalted Ishmael, father of the Arabs, over Isaac, father of the Jews. The Quran falsely states that Ishmael was the son who had the miraculous birth. According to Muhammad, Ishmael is later offered to Abraham on the, offered by Abraham on the mountaintop. Also, it was Abraham and Ishmael, according to the Quran, who built the Muslim temple in Mecca. The Quran steals the covenant from Isaac and bestows it on Ishmael. Muhammad claimed that Ishmael became the keeper of the true faith and passed it down to him. While Isaac strayed and his descendants, the Jews, lost God's inheritance, according to Muhammad. The Bible teaches that the blessing which comes through the Abrahamic covenant is Jesus, while Islam blasphemously asserts that the blessing of Abraham points to Muhammad. This denies biblical truth. Read through Genesis. Just read it for yourself. And the covenant that God makes with Abraham in chapters 12, 13, 15, 17, and 22 gets repeated to Abraham's son Isaac in chapter 26 and to his grandson Jacob in chapters 28 and 35. The land-nation-blessing covenant is Israel's divine right. Certainly not everything the modern state of Israel does is righteous. And the Arabs aren't always wrong. In fact, God promised to bless and multiply both Jews and Arabs. But the covenant that God made with Abraham, the land, nation, blessing, the seed, sod, and salvation belongs to the descendants of Isaac, not Ishmael. Abraham might have laughed once, but today it's no laughing matter. And not only did Abraham laugh at God's promise, so did Sarah. In Genesis 18, heavenly messengers show up at their tent to reaffirm God's promise of a son. Sarah eavesdrops in on their conversation. In verse 12, we're told, Sarah laughed within herself. That's when the angel replied, is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, there's not. The proof comes in chapter 21, verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Did you hear about the cool video games running on Abraham's laptop? Did you hear about this? Isaac was checking him out. When a concerned look came over the boy's face, he says, Dad, I don't think your computer has enough memory to run all these games. Abraham replied, Son, God will provide the ram. Which brings us to the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. Genesis chapter 22. In verse 2, God tells Abram, Abraham, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Notice that. God doesn't even recognize Ishmael as his son at this point. To God, Isaac alone was the promised heir. 
And Abraham is to take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Imagine what he's asking. He's asking him to raise a knife with the intent of slitting his own throat, his, his son's own throat. His only son. On top of that, Isaac was the heir of God's promise. Abraham had waited 25 years for this birth. And now he's supposed to sacrifice him back to God. According to Hebrews 11 verse 9, Abraham had thought this over. And he had concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham believed that if he sacrificed Isaac, God would resurrect him. This was a test for Abraham, and this was a picture for us. Father Abraham offered his only son on Mount Moriah, while 2,000 years later, the Father God made the same journey to offer his only son, Jesus, on that very same mountain. Moriah was one of the hills of Jerusalem. In Abraham's day, there was a settlement about halfway up the mountain. This means Abraham probably would have climbed above the settlement to the top of the hill. And this was the place later called Calvary or Golgotha, the exact spot where Jesus was crucified. And notice a few of the details here in this story. Abraham took wood for the sacrifice and laid it on Isaac. Jesus, too, carried wood up that hill, a wooden cross. Two men traveled with Abraham. There were also two thieves on the cross beside Jesus. On top of Mount Moriah, God stopped Abraham from laying the knife to Isaac's throat. Abraham's willingness passed the test. At that moment, a voice spoke, and it pointed to a ram stuck in the thicket. God provided the sacrifice that day, just as he would 2,000 years later when God offered his only son, Jesus the sinless sacrifice that blots out all sin. And the voice that spoke on top of Mount Moriah talked to Abraham again. In Genesis 22, verse 18, he said, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This reiterates the last of the covenant, the blessing promised by the Abrahamic covenant. And here's where it gets really interesting. In Galatians 3, verse 16, Paul will quote this verse from Genesis 22, verse 18. And he makes a big deal out of this word seed. See, Paul becomes emphatic. It reads seed, singular, not seeds, plural. And the apostle Paul uses this verse to prove that the covenant God made with Abraham ultimately pointed to one seed, Jesus, not just seeds, the Jews. And this is why the Abrahamic covenant is so vital to us personally. For it not only outlines God's dealings with Israel, the Jewish people, but it clarifies the root of our own salvation, Jesus Christ. So, Before you dismiss the Jewish claim to the land God promised them, you need to remember your salvation hinges on that same promise. The land is tied to a people. The people are tied to a blessing. 
The blessing is tied to Jesus. And hopefully, prayerfully, Jesus is tied to you. Father, we thank you.